What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is John Waite, who has a new documentary, which will be released on December 6th. John, good to have you on the podcast. Why now? Why a documentary? Uh, I don't know. I, it just happened. I was talking to an old friend of mine in Portland, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, protest that they had turned into a riot, and they were burning Portland, and he lived up there. And I, uh, I called him up to see if he was all right, and we got talking. And uh, he said, you know, you got such an interesting life and history, and you're still out there doing it. This would make a fabulous movie, you know? And I said, well, you know, that's all very well, but who would want to make it, you know? And he called me back a month later with the backing. And um, uh, I just fell into it. I, did, I, I just fell into it. It just, it wasn't planned. It just happened. So how much money did it take to make the movie? I have no idea. You see, um, I know it's a considerable amount. It's like a full budget documentary, but uh, I had nothing to do with any of the personnel or the choices of footage. Uh, I just showed up for the interviews. Uh, it was implicit in the deal that I, I wouldn't ask to see anything before it was finished. I didn't want to have any kind of input on a on what it looked like. If it's going to be a documentary and it's somebody's objective viewpoint of view um, or subjective, I mean, that's what it is. That's a, that's a documentary. And I had enough respect for the medium to not, I, I thought it would be ridiculous to get involved, you know? Well, it's interesting because in the light of uh, high def cameras on your phone, seemingly every yeah. musician has a documentary and, uh, but yours is radically different. 
It's just not an embellishment of your career. It really gets down into the nitty gritty of your identity, your struggles. So it's a great watch, even for someone who is not familiar with his career. But since you had no involvement, now that it's finished, yeah. what's your assessment? Well, it took me three months to watch it. They sent me a finished copy, and I just refused to watch it. And then one night, I drank a bottle of wine and said, tonight's the night, you know? And I watched it, and I was kind of dumbstruck, and I thought, well, what's that? And then the next day, I watched it again completely sober, and I thought, well, there you go, you know? Um, I think it's, uh, it isn't like, it's like a non-linear thing. It starts off uh, in the present and bounces back to the babies, and then it moves forward to my parents and me going to art school. My love of Western music as a kid, and then it sort of, it shoots through bad English and then winds up in the present. So uh, it's so of a style that somebody's personality that I I find it hard to critique. I mean, when, it, when you somebody makes a movie about you, you can't really say anything, can you? I mean, Bob, if they, if they made a, a documentary on your life... Um, how would you react to that? You know? Well, you know, this is something that's interesting because uh, Jan Wenner, who started and owned Rolling Stone, he hired yeah. someone to write a book about him, and then he wasn't happy, and he wrote his own book, <laughs> which really undercut his identity. Because if yeah. it's somebody else who writes, he can say, yeah. well, you have plausible deniability. So, yeah, yeah the, the, the memory has... Uh, as, as as some really convenient edit points, you know, and I've I found that with uh, with the documentaries that I've actually watched, uh, people skip over the dark stuff, and um, it's all promotional, you know. I mean, it's a tool to sell more records. It's a tool to promote the artist, and I just have no interest in that. I mean, you know, I, uh, I, you know. How often does this happen in a lifetime? Somebody, you know, knock on the door at dawn and you open the door and there's a film crew, you know? It's just the oddest thing. I mean, I think anybody outside of this situation would know more about it than me. I just try to tell the truth and keep a straight face, you know? Okay, having watched the movie, uh, how's your state of mind? The movie was filmed during COVID when you weren't working. Yeah. And you were not happy about that. It caused tensions in your relationship. Now that you're back on the road, is everything hunky dory? Or, you know, we live in a completely different era. You had great breakthroughs in the MTV era, and it's in the movie where you're a household name around the world. Yeah. You almost can't leave the, you know, go to the yeah. supermarket. But what's it like for you today? Uh, what do you mean, fan voice or after the pandemic? Well, let's start inside your head. Are you depressed? Are you optimistic? Well, no, I'm always optimistic. It's the one thing that's probably kept me uh, up and running is that I always think today is going to be a great day and I never even think about it. I believe in it, you know, and uh, you can stumble across something and make some great art or at least the best you can do. Um, I think the pandemic was very difficult for everybody. Relationships, uh, the lot. I mean, when you're sort of locked into a life of... Um, not being able to go outside and connect with people or being a musician, um, not being able to transmit all those ideas and have that exchange, 
it's bound to have a negative effect. I mean, it was very depressing. It's hard to look back on it. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I don't re really remember much about it. It's like it's just the same day over and over again. So um, it was a terrible time. I, you know, I, I, but I think we came out swinging at the end of it. You know, I think it was it was great to be back, and we haven't stopped working since. We came out early, like last July and played a couple of private shows and then we just hit the road and played right through the rest of the year and this year we started started off making up for the gigs that have been rescheduled did a complete american tour went straight from there to holland and came back like three weeks ago and played another show in massachusetts and then we're off again i'm in st louis today so there is something about moving and uh, taking stock and uh, reevaluating what's going on and where the work is and what needs to to be done to move forward. You know, a lot of acts had financial issues not working. They had overhead. They had bands. Was it a struggle for you, or did you have enough in savings? No, I certainly had enough in the bank. I've been taking care to stockpile as much money as I can since I got control of my career to make up for lost time. You know. Um, the, the unfortunate thing, just to sort of like the sideline is that now that, uh, Spotify is streaming artist music and paying such a minimal, uh, royalty, the artist as usual falls back on working live to make up for that, to get through. And with the pandemic that was taken away as well. So a lot of musicians really got hurt in, in that situation. But I was lucky that uh, I had enough royalties coming in and enough in the bank not to worry about it. Okay. When Napster came in and royalties started going down in the earlier part of this century, were you still having a significant payment in recording royalties that fell off? It just uh, maybe by about 70%. I mean, at one point, you know, it, it, I had so many hits like with the babies and with the solo stuff and bad English. And recently, you know, with the, with the stuff that's getting played on radio. But, uh, once, uh, Spotify came in, that was the end of that. It was just like a piece of Peter Frampton said, if he, he gets a million, uh, streams, uh, he gets like a hundred dollars, you know, it's an absurd small amount that's been sort of arbitrarily given to the artist. Okay. Let's talk about all your records. Who owned those records? Obviously your recent solo ones, I believe you own, but the stuff on Chrysalis, the stuff with bad English, are those still owned by the record company or are those owned by you? Well, the baby stuff will always be with Chrysalis and the first solo. Album. Um, I've got the publishing back on everything forward of that. Uh, I have, well, I own with the rest of bad English, the bad English stuff. Uh, that'll come back to me probably this year. I mean, sooner or later it comes back to you. I mean, I right. did try and get the, the, I did, I really did try and get some of it back from Chrysalis, but uh, it, it's just te technicalities. You know, there's lawyers involved and it goes to court and they are bigger lawyers than I do. Okay, you know, you made multiple records with Chrysalis, and the way the game works 
many acts sell millions of records, but they still don't get any royalties because the record company says they're still in the red. Yeah. Do you happen to know if you're in the red or the black with Chrysalis? Um, <clears throat> I'm definitely, as far as they say, in the red. So there's a point you get with that where you just say, keep it. You know, I don't want to get down on that level where it's like, I mean, it's a squabble. You know, I mean, it's had its heyday. We were all young and crazy. We had careers out of it. And you have to be philosophical about it and say, well, it gave me a name. And I was able to go forward from that point and, um, and do very well. So at some point, you just don't want to cloud your life with it, really. Well, that's a great philosophy. I wish everybody had that. But needless to say, from when you broke in a monoculture to today, you know, if you're the biggest act in the world from that era and you put out a single, it still gets no traction. So how do you feel about making new music when it's so hard to be noticed? Well, I think, honestly, um, you spend six months writing a record and getting the right musicians, the band, an engineer, the right studio. It's very hard work, and there's a lot of uh, commitment to it. The songs have to be a, of a really high caliber. You're not messing around. And you, and you spend all the money, like 50 grand or whatever it is, which is a reasonable amount of money to make a great record. If you can't make a great record for 50 grand, there's something wrong with you. And the idea is to do first and second takes and fix things, but not do it like it used to be done, which is like recording every uh, instrument separately and all that kind of crap. It's just really... and um, But you put it out, and in this kind of day and age, it's only in the spotlight for like a week. And then it's gone. And if you don't make records, your fans are kind of annoyed at you for not doing anything new. So uh, um, it's a pleasure to make the albums and it's a pleasure to play them to the audience. And that you, you really sell a lot of those albums at, at gigs, you know. I mean, nobody really buys CDs anymore, but they, you, people buy them at, at shows. You can sell thousands and thousands and thousands of CDs at shows. But uh, I think the music business, as, um, as what we thought it was, just simply doesn't exist anymore. It just does not exist. Okay, you go on the road. At the merch table, you sell CDs. What else do you sell? And do you personally get behind the merch table and sign it? Uh, it's all signed. Uh, we do a meet and greet. I try and spend time with each person that comes. I don't just wheel them through. Uh, they're very sincere, genuine, kind of, they always made that effort to meet you. So I, I've found that I can be quite social and put people at their ease and talk to them for quite a long time. And uh, I can't imagine doing it any other way. If you get behind the merch table, you're going to get mobbed uh, or it's going to get out of control. It's gonna, but everything's signed. We have T-shirts, CDs, buttons, lyrics, pieces of art, I pen. So you can buy all sorts of things. We try and keep the price down. Uh, I will say that instead of it being a $50 t-shirt, it's a $20 t-shirt. Instead of it being a $40 CD, it's a $20 CD. And I think that's part of the deal with the audience. They come to see you and they stick with you through thick and thin. And I'm not going to gouge my audience to, to make a profit. You know, it makes a profit, but it isn't stupendous, you know, but it's enough. So you're talking about these hardcore John Waite fans. Do you actually know some of them? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> over the years, you know, you do see those faces coming um, in the front row and you, you know, give them a wink and a smile and say hello. But uh, it really is, you know, it's like, um, it's that thing I talk about in the documentary about the, about the exchange. It really is. It, it transcends just going out there and playing and, you know, being rock and all that. It, there's something going on with music. You don't write music to put in a vault and nobody hears it. You share it. In a perfect world, music really would be free. You know, but you can't hire a band, take them out on the road and pay for the hotels and airplane flights and not charge people. But there's a middle ground where you can really bring it to the people and celebrate that thing. And there is a, a feeling of almost family about it. People show up and travel from all over the world, you know. It's amazing. Uh, the least I can do is show up and and, uh, and share it in a fair way. So prior to the pandemic, yeah. going forward, how many days a year do you work? Well, we were doing about 70 to 80 days a year. But uh, this year we went to Holland. We did a major American tour. We played for the first half of the year making updates. I would say we're, we're about 70 now, and we have like 20 more days to go. So we're probably about 20 more days ahead as things are. I think with the documentary coming out, we'll probably do more days, you know? And, you know, there are different styles of going on the road based on income. There are people who take private jets. There are people in station wagons, people, <laughs> in, people in tour buses. How are you doing it these days? Well, we fly in. We all fly in from different places, and we meet at the airport. There's a van. Tim runs off and gets the van. He picks us all up. We throw the guitars in the back, goes to the hotel, or find some Indian food then goes to the hotel. We drive as much as we can. Everybody hears to fly. Flying in the airport and security just kills the vibe of being out there. So we drive. And if it's a five-hour drive, we'll leave after the show and knock a couple of hours out and stay in a hotel on the, on the highway and then wake up early and get back in the van and drive to the next gig. It's, it's low impact. I think we've got it down to a science. I really do. Um, everybody gets on. There's always jokes. You know, everybody sort of uh, knows what to do. So it's the best it can be. It's really, uh, of all the touring I've done, this has been the easiest. And in some ways, it's open to the most things going wrong. But we, we just seem to sort of like roll with the punches. There's a movie Paul Simon made in 1980, I believe it was, One Trick Pony. And there are these scenes driving in the van where they're playing games like dead rock stars, et cetera. When you're in the van, is there conversation or is everybody in their own world? Um, well, I hope they're not going to play dead rock star because fairly soon it's going to be me. <laughs> uh, let me see. No, we, we you know, it, it started off like a lot of chatter, you know, and then we were playing like Bill Evans, which we all like Bill Evans. And then, then it was Ella Fitzgerald. Then it was kind of like, you know, free. And then it got more obscure and went to cream and, and bands that we love. And now everybody's sort of reading the book or sleeping. You know, I think there's a, a kind of nervous energy where you're trying to communicate all the time. And that can get in the way of the communication later on in the day. I think if you, uh, if you can keep in your own space mentally, you're going to have more to offer 
when you actually get into that musical conversation on stage. Okay, so let's assume you do a gig. You end at 11 o'clock. Yeah. What people don't realize is a musician is really wired after that because you've given yeah. it all your all. Yeah. So let's say it's a drive. So how long after the gig are you going to get into the van and how long before you personally can calm down from the gig? Well, that's, you know, the adrenaline being a singer, me and the drummer have the hardest gigs because it's a very aerobic kind of uh, physically demanding thing. Your heart's going like a, like a steam hammer. You come off stage, you shake hands with people, sign some stuff, get in the van, drive. And you can still, when you get to the hotel, it's a strange room. You know, you check into a different world. Um, you can be awake till three in the morning. You know, it's just the way it is. I listen to audio books a lot. Uh, you can't take anything to help you sleep because it's going to affect your vocals. You know, it really gets in the way of the performance. So you really can't um, use anything to to knock you out. But audiobooks work, you know, they really do. You, The moment you're in the book, you're asleep. Okay. Since you're a connoisseur, give me two good audiobooks that you can recommend. Um, well, I was listening to uh, George Simenon, um, uh, the uh, Maigret books, The French Detective. They're very, very good, and they're a different world here in France. And uh, the John Nesba, Harry Hole detective books, they're incredibly well-written. And, uh, you know, Harry Hole, I mean, you just kind of go with him. It's tragic, but it's uh, very engaging. But, you know, the French Revolution, not kidding. You get into that. Uh, young Stalin, you know, these, you know it's, uh, anything that's going to take your mind away from where you are, the further away from where you are, it's going gonna, it's gonna to open that door and you're going to crash. You know, it's great. Okay, let's be very specific. Gig ends at 11. What time do you get to a hotel on the road? Well, it could be if we're staying in the neighborhood at, within an hour. Right. But if, if, you, if you have 600 miles to go, you generally just pile in the van and drive for three hours. Like I said, crash in a, in a hotel on the way, a holiday inn, and get up the next day and finish the drive. But it's good, you know, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're going to go hang out? I mean, you know, it's not, you don't want to party, you know, and all that kind of stuff that happened when we were younger, it doesn't work. I mean, I don't know how the hell we got through some of that stuff when we were kids because nobody got any sleep and it was <laughs> just impossible. But it was romantic and we all loved it, you know. But I think uh, as you get older, the work is absolutely the first thing on the menu. The good time thing comes maybe third, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, just, it's enough of a good time to rip out a really great show. Okay. But do you end up getting enough sleep? No, never. But you're running on empty, you know, the one thing, the two things on the road that you need more than anything is sleep and coffee. And the two opposite ends of, of what it takes to get through, but we change drink coffee. You know, we, um, Coffee's just the thing. We just all coffee up. And you'd be surprised. You know, you could be, you know, sometimes to make it work, you do four or five gigs in a row. And on the fifth gig, it's like, holy Christ, you know, how are we going to pull this off? You know, and your voice is scratching. And you walk out there and within 10 seconds, everything's in focus. You have all the energy in the world. 
the audience give you all this stuff and you immediately give it back to the audience and away you go. And it could be the best show you're going to play of the five, you know? It's always that thing. You walk out from the moment you leave the wings to walking towards the microphone, to holding the microphone, plugging in the guitar. That something is transformative in those 20 paces. And you just, you're in flight, you know? It's, it's why you can. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's say you do a run of dates and you fly home. How yeah. long does it take you to calm down from those dates? Uh, that's that's a good one. Um, yeah, that's a rough one. When I was younger, it was almost impossible. You know, you come back from a baby's tour and I'd be just rattled. You know, I'd be looking for things to do and at night it'd be just terrible. You know, you can't just sit and watch TV. These days, on the way back from the airport, uh, me and my girl will probably go and get a lot of Indian food. And... Um, you know, eat a gigantic amount of food and have a beer maybe. And that seems to calm things down. I mean, at some point, you know, you have to, you learn, really, you learn how to step back, you know? Okay, you live in Santa Monica? I do, yeah. So where's good Indian food that you get? Uh, there's one on Pico. It's uh, called, I think, uh, India's Oven. It's like really, it's just a small hideaway in a strip mall, but they're great people. The Sikhs, the, the chef is wearing like a, a beautiful bright yellow turban and stuff. And the, the nice people I know, but, uh, you know, you can, you can really find some good stuff in, uh, in, in the Santa Monica area. There's some very good Indian restaurants. Okay. Do you own your own home condominium? Yeah. Do you rent? You yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. How long, how long ago that. did you buy? 
Buy that. Uh, about 20 years ago. Good investment. Yeah, I know. I know. I was I was living in New York City, which is probably home. But uh, uh, I'd been there quite a long time, living on Madison Avenue. And uh, I, I had a record coming out. My manager was living in L.A. And I thought, well, I'll go and spend a year in L.A. And um, I, I, I went on tour and for some strange reason made a lot of money. And it was like, what am I going to do with all this money, you know? And being someone that's seen the bank account go down to, you know, in the red, uh, I had enough sense to buy something. So I bought this really beautiful condo for the going rate, which was pretty affordable. And, you know, yeah, I own it. Now, one element of the movie is this girlfriend you have, and she says that you've known each other the better part of 20 years, yeah. but you just started to live together. What's the yeah. backstory there? Well, we met um, um, walking through Central Park. She was on a, a soap opera called The City, Joni Allen, and uh, she was walking west, and I was walking east. And she asked me how to get out of the park because Central Park in the middle of it is like an optical illusion. It, it sort of makes you think you're going in one direction. Well, you're not. It's very cleverly laid out. And, um, you know, we were on and off again for years and years and years. And uh, when I'd moved to Santa Monica, I was, I was on the bike path going south. No, she was going south and I was going north. And we sort of almost bumped into each other. So it was kind of like, it's like one of those, you know, it's a Tom Hanks movie all, you know, but rock and roll. But um, she liked the idea that you, sh that, uh, you said she uh, was well endowed. She's just a very skinny girl, really. <laughs> bada bing. Bada bing, bada bing. <laughs> okay, I have to ask, because the yeah. movie was shot during the pandemic, and there are a couple of moments where she's expressing tension in the relationship yeah. and frustration that you've internalized because you can't go on the road. Yeah. Now that you're back on the road, how are you getting along? Well, we're trying. I think with every every relationship, it never stops. You know, you're trying all the time. Uh, there's part of me, to be really honest, there's a solitary kind of person, which is probably why. I lived in New York City for so long and loved it. Uh, is that you can just come and go, and um, I'm always thinking about something or reading a book or, you know, I can be fairly distant. So we always have to work on me being distant, but uh, we're still together, you know. Okay, so you're a creative person. You know, it's what people don't realize. It's the very outgoing extroverts who are the business people and the introverts are the artists. And it's a very different mentality, even though they intersect. Yeah. So, but in music, one has to network and work it. So how do you get those two sides of your personality to work? One wants to be a home internalized being creative. The other one has to go out, get a job, get a band, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like I said before, Bob, it's like, you, know, you don't write music to, to, to keep it to yourself. Um, Alison Krauss once told me we were both shy people. I was very shy as a kid, cripplingly shy. And uh, I was a bass player. All bass players are kind of like that. But Alison Krauss said she had to overcome her shyness to do what she loved the most. And uh, I think that person that's kind of introverted or introspective is the word. 
uh, that writes that stuff, that performs those songs. Um, you can't just keep it to yourself. At some point, you have the whole point of music, of art, is to share something. It's, and I, you know, when I was in the babies, I mean, I didn't want to be center stage. I didn't want to be the singer. I was the only guy that could do it. So I, I put it all to one side and said, come on, man, now or never, you know. And I, I stepped into that persona, and then it became easier and easier. And it's like I said about the meet and greet. I can walk into a room full of people and I think honestly put them at their ease almost immediately. And I think there's a sincere thing to it. It's not like something you learn. It's I think I'm naturally friendly and I, and I respect people and I want them to have a great time when they come and see me play. If I can spend 15 minutes talking to somebody and it turns their world around, I mean, what a job. You know, as Anthony Burden said, you know, what a job. I make people happy. And some of the songs are desperate and they're dark and they're not something you want to listen to if you want to, you know, party your brains out. But as people relate, you know, I think we're all going through the same things as we get older. And I think there's a conversation going on between the audience and the artist and it's, it's a worthwhile conversation. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about your personality. Hypothetically, I call you John. We're going to a party. There's going to be 50 people there. Come along. Are you going to say, give me the address? You're going to say, eh, I don't really no, know. I just, I no, I wouldn't go. I really wouldn't. Michelle Pfeiffer said once that she, you, when she got invited to parties, she'd wind up in the garden playing with the dog. You know, and I thought that was very endearing. But I'm like that. I mean, I, I like people, but I don't have to go out and hang around in bars to meet people and sort of. You know, I, I I really value the time by myself. I read a lot, and I paint, and I write a lot. And I'd like to keep the two worlds kind of separate. I mean, once you're on the road with a band, you know, it's camaraderie, it's, it's a lot of fun, and then there's the show, and all the people you meet. It's a very positive thing. But I need to go back into um, my roots to recharge. I can't stay in the spotlight too long. So let's say you're in your house and you're in a room and you're painting or something and your girlfriend interrupts you. Yeah. Are you cool with that? Or are you saying, no, no, I'm in my zone. You got to no, leave me no, alone. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not that bad. But I, it's, it's, I will be looking for something to do. That's, that's kind of, I've just recently started to write stories, like short stories. And I, I, I've kind of got a knack for it. I, I just ran off something that was like just on a computer, just tapping out the words. And th these things are not like, um, it isn't like I'm a boy genius. It's just what I do in my off time. Some people watch TV. I don't. I, I can't watch TV. I can watch a movie, but I can't watch. I just, I'm not good at taking time off unless I'm doing something. So you talked about wanting to share your art. Now that you're writing these short stories, are you looking to share those? Well, I would like to get better. I, I, I dashed off this five-piece um, short story about a guy looking for his brother, and he goes on a bender in Soho, drinks himself into the floor, gets on the Dieppe ferry to France, gets in a knife fight with two uh, Apaches, they call them in France, uh, street thugs, and gets killed. Um, and it's a five-part story. And I, I reread I re it again two weeks ago. 
and it needs all sorts of editing. And at first I thought I'd stumble across some rare talent, you know. But I have nothing but respect for writers. That's a whole different thing. That's a command. I mean, writing songs is, uh, you have the chords behind it to, to color the words. If you, if you say a certain word like train and you play an A major, it's a beat. It's a train, you know, train, train. If you play an A minor, the train could be going to hell. You know, it's like the, the, that's a different, there's a lot of things in play, but just to write, this is why I'll never do a memoir. I could never do it. I could never get that right. Okay. Let's just go back for a second to being on the road. Um, did you ever have a time being on the road using drugs and alcohol to calm down from the exhilaration of the show? Yeah. And of did it ever get into a territory that you look back now and say, what the hell was I doing? Or was it always no, under control? No, I think on the road, if you start doing that kind of stuff, I mean, we're talking about cocaine, obviously, but I mean, if you, in the old days, there would be a couple of lines of blow and people would do it and they would have a shot of brandy or whatever, go to a club, get up and sing with the band. Anything at all could happen after that. And you'd wake up with a hangover and have to travel to the next gig. <laughs> and if the band's any good and you have any sense at all, the other three or four guys are going to grab you by the back of the collar and say, knock it off. This is our lives too, you know. If you start to self-destruct, you usually get bounced out of a band. It happens a lot. People drink themselves to death. And um, it's the time off that's the problem because you're looking to fill this void with something that's electrifying, you know. Well, that is one serious moment in the movie where uh, there's an altercation with the guitarist who's ultimately fired. Yeah. So... Give us a little bit more on that. Well, his personality was uh, flamboyant, to say the least. And uh, I'm sort of working class, and he was very much upper middle class and had a whole different take on what he was there for. And it, it, he barely spoke to me. He, I mean, I tried to write songs with him, you know, tried to buy him a drink. You know, did, but he had made his mind up that I was the competition or something. And I just did, like I said before, I didn't even want to be in the center of the stage. But it all came to a head on, on one of the gigs when he smashed the guitar and screamed fuck off at the audience. And, and we just like looked at each other like, we have no idea what point, how far. It had been so bad for so long. I actually remember uh, having a glass of Grand Marnier at the end of this table smoking a cigarette i mean i remember thinking just another day you know it's just what goes on but it, it started to get wilder and wilder and by the time we got on the bus he was in full meltdown and um in the movie it you know it we talk about the fight and stuff but there was so much money riding on the band and investment not only from the businessmen but from all of us, the hardship we've been through to get that far. And then one guy's trying to actually like, you know, really seriously injure you with an instrument. You know, it's like kind of like, well, wow, you know, what is that? I mean, what is this band worth to me? You know, I don't want to go through life with no eyesight. I don't want to, you know, maybe bleed to death on the floor because he's got a broken ball. But there's a point where you look at it and you go like, Jesus Christ, man. 
how do we get to this? We're all trying to get to the next level and you're trying to kill me. I mean, I don't know what to say to that. I, you know, because I mean, it, it's not something I enjoy talking about. It's still a mystery to me that I've put up with it for so long, but it did explode. And when you fired him, what did he say? Oh, he thinks that it was like the record company fired him. And, but I mean, that's like saying, I didn't try and fuck you up with the bottle. It's the record company don't like me. It's, it's that unreality thing comes into it, where you think you're really dealing with somebody that's got a different take on absolutely everything. You know, he was incensed. But that should show you where he was. I mean, at what point do you really try and mess someone up with a broken bottle? Have you ever encountered him since? No. He's, uh, he goes off on the internet and he's like, you know, I'm a star, you're not, all this kind of crap. And I just, I, you know, at some point you just go like, well, I did the best for you. I really did. I, you know, put up with that for years and years and that's your answer to me. So what do I do? Okay. You grow up in Northwest England. What's that like? Oh, it's beautiful. Lancaster is a castle. An art school that was built that I went to to be an art school. It has like glass roofs for life class and print rooms. It's not like that anymore. It's uh, some sort of building for different things, tourist board. It's a very, very antiquated old city with cobbled streets and houses from the 13th century. The Priory Church next to the castle, the foundations were a thousand years old. And it's laid out really beautifully. It's like a really incredibly strange, very, very British thing, surrounded by fields. And we had a university come about 35 years ago, and it's, it's taken over the town, so it's, it's kind of changed quite a lot. But Lancaster really is something. I go back there as much as I can. And how did your family end up there? Well, they were born there. I mean, you know, England, it could go back 500 years. Do you know how many generations your family was there? Um, well, my my father's mother, uh, her family um, are in the Doomsday Book. That's King John's uh, account of who owns what, where the farm belongs to. You know, um, they were called Machen. So they go back. They're, they're like Yorkshire. And uh, my mum is uh, Lancashire, and there's Irish blood in me somewhere um, from my grandmother's mother, and there's some Maltese blood, apparently from a generation or two before that. But um, it's pretty much Church of England straight on, you know. I mean, everybody comes from somewhere in Britain. It's like, you know, it's, it's Celtic or it's Norman or it's, you know, Anglo-Saxon. And what did your parents do for a living? Well, my mum was a nurse, played the piano, could tap dance, all that kind of thing. She was great. She still is. She's 97. My dad, he was a mechanic, but he was also a chess player and extremely well-read. He was supposed to be the, the most well-read man in Lancaster. <laughs> Autodidact. You know, because when the war came, you couldn't go to university. But I think if the war hadn't happened, he would have gone to university. He, was a, he, was, uh, he had an absolutely incredible love of books and a uh, very smart man. And how many kids in the family? 
I have a brother called Joe, who's a really, really great guitar player, who I learned an enormous amount from. Now but he's old. He's old. Yeah, he's he's four years older than me. Okay. So you start going to school. What kind of kid are you? Are you like the life of the party, an outcast, just one no, one of the no. I was pretty popular. I really was a popular kid. I you know, the, the the bullies would always come around and give you a really bad time, especially when you got to about 15. You know, I had long hair and I dressed differently and I didn't fit in at school, but I, the, the girls liked me and I, I had a lot of friends. You know, I would say I was a really popular kid. Looking back on it, it was really wonderful, you know. But there's always those bastards in the corner that, you know, want to show you what's what. And I and I took it pretty hard in the last couple of years. It was just rough. Good student, bad student. And how I did couldn't you do anything. I couldn't. I, I, my math is almost non-existent. Uh, I had dyslexia, so my B's and D's were backwards, which is uh, ironic being a lyricist, you know. But I love to read. I love literature and I loved art. So they let me just do art classes for my final year to build up a portfolio so I could get into art school, which was very kind of them. It really was. Because I really was the odd man out at school. I was kind of the bohemian kid. But it was great. And like I said, I was kind of popular. So, uh, you know, although there was a couple of moments of extreme craziness with a couple of the really big kids, I mean, uh, I got through it pretty well, really. Okay. So you're in the UK where the Beatles break a couple of years earlier. Were you yeah. a big fan of music before that or was yeah. it the Beatles? So how did you get into it? Well, no, I, I, you would just hear cowboy music. Uh, you know, uh, Marty Robbins, Trill, Fighter Ballads. Couldn't uh, Fighter Ballads and Trill songs. That was a big album. And I'd hear it occasionally on the radio or in stores. We didn't have a record player. We couldn't afford one. But my my cousin Carol had a radiogram and some records, and she had Brenda Lee, Everybody Loves Me But You. I remember hearing that when I was about six and falling in love with Brenda Lee. But it was all country and Americana, but specifically uh, Western songs. I mean, Ghost Riders in the Sky, man. Wow. <laughs> You know, it's like the baritone guitar and cowboys. You know, you just got through being a kid listening to, you know, Davy Crockett and stuff. And then it became this sexier thing. And you started to inch forward into being an older kid and you'd see the symbolism. And there was nothing more important than America when you're like five and it's, like I said, Davy Crockett and cowboys and Indians. And then this music that you'd hear every once in a while. And that led straight into the Beatles. And from that point on, there was absolutely no question about what I would do, really. So how did you first hear the Beatles? And to what degree were you a fan of the Beatles? Well, I remember, um, I remember, I must have been about eight. But I remember watching this TV show, and they came on, and they played Love Me Do. And then the next week, I think they came back and did Please Please Me. But I saw it on Granada television. We lived in a tiny cottage that faced into the countryside. If you can imagine like some little kid watching the Beatles in this cottage with the trees outside and the fields. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strange picture, but it, it was like the Northwest. They came from Liverpool, which is only 70 miles from Lancaster. And they were the most different thing you've ever seen in the world. But the sound of it itself 
The sound was incredible. And the songs were there, you know, as we all know. And it took us along with it. Uh, the next seven years were like, um, I mean, it, it was like being given something. Every album that came out, you couldn't wait to hear it. And everything you heard made your hair stand up on end. I mean, it was the most incredible thing. And it was working class, which was really something. It, you'd never really seen that before. Hardcore, working class, black and white, Liverpoolian, and the best thing you're going to hear for the next 50 years. You know? you know, I only have an American perspective. The Beatles came, and then there was so-called British Invasion, yeah. which was everything you know, hard-edged on one level, like the Stones, yeah. and then people who really weren't rockers like Freddie and the Dreamers on the yeah. other hand. So, <laughs> How do you do what you do to me? Oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> So were you a fan of all those acts or was it more like just, nah. you know? No, I, I just remember the other day, you know, people ask me these questions, Bob, and I, and I, and you go like, yeah, the Beatles. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, Ghostwriters. Yeah. You know, Bob. but I, I remember having a pretty things, uh, EP with don't bring me down, uh, big boss man, uh, bright lights, big city, I think was on there, but I remember having that EP and I was only eight and I hadn't got a record player. And my mum would take me down to my grandmother's on a Friday to visit, you know, and um, I'd take the CP and I'm playing the pretty things at eight. So I was probably heading towards uh, the Yardbirds and uh, Free and the Jeff Beck group and, and all the, and Jimi Hendrix, you know, I mean, geez. And, but all those acts, you know, they were, they were more hardcore. But more importantly, they were all inspired by African-American music, blues and soul. And the really fascinating part about the whole thing is that as I was singing as a kid, I was singing in a blues style. I didn't learn that from anybody. I didn't know about Muddy Waters till I was about 15. You know, I knew about Hank Williams, but that isn't blues singing. But I sang in this, and I phrased in exactly the same way as I do now. I didn't learn how to sing. I've always sounded like this. And it's a mystery to me to know where that comes from. But maybe it's just something you're born with, and maybe I, I did hear something that was like, just, it all came from black music. I don't know. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. At what point did you learn how to play an instrument? And then how did you end up on the bass? My brother had a Telecaster. The first Telecaster in the Northwest, really. He, he got it on, on payments and I uh, was playing gigs. He was a really good guitar player, still is. And I think I, I went to the bass because um, he was the lead guitar player. I probably hoped and prayed that we'd start a band together. Because when you sing with your brother, you really do sing like in harmony and stuff. It's a magical thing between brothers. But I started to fall in love with the bass when I, you know, there's Andy Fraser and uh, there's Jack Bruce. And there's uh, Renus Gerritsen. There's just fine. The bass is like a Zen instrument. It's like the cello, you know. I love the cello. I love bass notes. I like the way the bass moves behind the chords. I mean, on the Beatles' first album, you hear Paul McCartney go, How could I dance with another? And he goes, And it's like a passing note. You know, I was, I was maybe 14 when I heard that. Blew my mind how anybody could be that clever to put a passing note in a rock and roll song. Nobody had ever done that. And it was just an elegant instrument, you know, and it looked beautiful. The EB3 is still a thing of enormous beauty to me, or the Dan Electro Longhorn. They're all beautiful instruments, the bass instruments. So when did you start playing in bands and what did that look like? Well, I, I sang in my brother's band when, when he was uh, about 17 and I was 13. I'd go around to their rehearsals and sing Walking the Dog, Lucille, Maybelline, uh, those kind of songs. Um, and then when I was at art school, we needed a band to play the art school dance and I got my brother to get his drummer, and we just played for like three hours blues and shuffles, and that was my first time out. But uh, from that point on, towards the end of my stay at art school, I actually put a band together that was my own, and we were out playing dates. So, you know, I, um, man, when you get the bug, whatever you call it, there's nothing going to stop you. You know, I've slept on floors, and I've been in the back of a truck for like, you know, 10 hours but you do it and you love it and none of it's work you're in the middle of a romantic thing it's what you want to do uh, whether you'd pay to do it or not it's another matter but you certainly don't want to be anywhere else it's all that matters you know so 
How do you get from Lancaster to London? Uh, by bus. Bada bing. Okay, keep going. It's 222 miles. And uh, the first time I, I joined a band, there's a guy called Ollie Olcott. It was like a really genius guitar player from the Northwest. He played Reading Festival in a band called Universe. It was a big deal. It wasn't signed, but he was a big deal. And he saw me play and asked me if I wanted to go to London. And I actually got almost arrested about um, six weeks before for a jewel robbery, which I did not do. But the, the police came to a, a sound check at the Seahorse Bar in Morecambe, tapped me on the shoulder. And then took me and my band down to the police station and grilled us for like two hours, three hours. And uh, they, they thought that I was a bad lot. The band was dealing uh, hash. Me and this guy, Martin, the roadie, were sat in this interrogation room. And Martin, they leave us after asking all these questions. And Martin pulls out a lump of hash and starts eating it. And I thought, yeah, you know, I thought, well, there goes my life. You know, I think <laughs> I'll, uh, you know, I think I'll just get a job now or maybe go to jail, whatever. And they accused me of stealing Lonnie Donegan's drum cases when we played with Lonnie Donegan about three months before. And uh, what would I be doing with drum cases where the drummer was uh, very light-fingered? So I would think all fingers would point to the drummer, but I think he was pointing at me. So this window opened for me to go to London with Ollie. Ollie Alcock, and uh, live in West Hampstead with the roadie and Ollie in a room that was eight by 10 and live in London. And it was spectacular. You know, I had no money. I was signing on the dole, getting like four pounds a week, living off God knows what. But it was fantastic. London in the early 70s, going to the Marquee Club, seeing these bands that were just incredible, Stone the Crows and, you know, Humble Pie. Steve Marriott, I saw Steve Marriott sing at the London Palladium. You know, I mean, just just the wildest stuff. But um, that's how I got to London. Yeah, long story. And were you playing in any band before you joined the Babies? Yeah, uh, that was, you know, that was with uh, England, it was called. We were playing festivals and the Marquee Club and speaking of living out. And uh, I went to America to join a band in Cleveland that look, we're looking for a bass player that blew up. I came back oh, to a London. little bit, a little bit slower. How does a band in Cleveland find you in London and then you go? Well, the, the, the singer, the original singer from England, a Scottish guy called Phil Ray, Jesse Ray didn't work out with Ollie. So he left and I stayed with Ollie and, uh, he somehow got to Cleveland. I was in a band. Uh, and they needed a bass player. And I left Ollie's band because we were going nowhere, went home, and I couldn't get a job. I didn't want a job. My dad wasn't pleased to see me coming home. It was time to, to get a life, you know. And I was just desperate. And this letter came from Cleveland. Do you want to come and play bass? So I I packed up the old kit bag and, and somehow got a visa, and, and, and I went to Cleveland for like four months. And we played all over some of the small clubs there and uh, tried to get a record deal. That fell through. And then I came back to London and the baby started. Okay. Had you been anywhere 
other than you know no. the UK. What was it like being in Cleveland of all well, places? I, I, do you remember that book, um, Diary of a Rock and Roll Star by Ian Hunter? Of course. Yeah, fantastic book. On the bus home from London, I read that book, and it was just about Cleveland, about the scene, um, about Kid Leo, about MMS, the Buzzard, all that. You know, it was like whoa. And the scene that was happening in in Cleveland was a mirror of what was happening in London, really. So when it came through that, I could go to Cleveland. It was like, wow, I'll take a shot on that. And um, it was a ballsy move, you know, but I would have done anything to be in a band, really. I just wanted to play. Okay, so that doesn't work out. You come back to the UK. Uh, you know, it's talked about in the movie with Adrian Millar, but... yeah. A little bit slower. How do you end up in the babies? Well, there was this mutual friend called uh, Gordon that works on Shaftesbury Avenue at Guitar Village, and he knew Mike Corby, who was the guitar player. And Mike had a manager called Adrian, and they were looking for somebody that could write songs and sing and play bass. Would I be interested in taking a meeting? And would I, you know? So I went for a pint of beer. On a Friday night, I think, at Sir Richard Steele's pub on Haverstock Hill. And we talked about it. And, you know, it was like, it could happen. You know, I mean, if you can get a record deal, that's unbelievable. And I, I went home and told my girlfriend, I said, look, it's, you know, pie in the sky. It's just too much. But Adrian was very tenacious, you know. And he must have seen something in me because... Uh, it took about 15 months, but we eventually got a record deal. And uh, I wrote songs and I sang them and I became that person, you know. So in those 15 months, what were you doing and what was the band doing to ultimately lead up to this record deal? Well, we had a, there was two artists from the Royal College that owned a warehouse on Tooley Street, which is just south of the Thames. And Adrian knew him. They were eccentric guys that were great. But they had this rehearsal space called Bass in the in the basement of this great big tea warehouse. And we used to go down there and audition people or just, you know, go to the pub next door and have a beer and talk about it even more. It was all, you know, it's like um, we talked about it more than we were it. You know, it was like, and I went home and wrote songs. And then I come back in and we'd work them all up. Uh, we got Tony down, the drummer. He was a hot drummer in London. And then we had something. We had a three-piece band. So we went in the studio and cut demos. It was unbelievable, you know. It was actually moving forward in, in a sort of like, it was weaving, you know, but it was moving forward. And um, eventually we got, a, we got signed through doing a video, which was very unusual. And um, man, this is about 15 lifetimes ago. It really is, you know. It's hard to it's hard to look back without being misty eyed. But it was uh, it was rough, you know. We didn't have any money to eat. It was all hand to mouth. It was desperate, you know. And, it, and London, cold and rainy, no heating, no hot water. You know, it was kind of, you know, it was. It's chance in a million that it turned out like it did. You sign with chrysalis. Do you just walk in a room and sign, or do you hire a lawyer? How did that happen? Well, the band had a lawyer, 
but the band was certainly provided the lawyer by Adrian. I mean, I knew it going in. You know, if you sign on for something, you can't start blaming people. It was a raw deal for me and a good deal for them. But um, I came as part of the package. And, um, but it was a huge signing, and we got some money and uh, an allowance, you know, which is a big deal too back then. And we got on with it. We just, I, I kept thinking no matter what happens, if you just keep, you know, punching, you're going you're gonna to come through somewhere. I just thought that was always going to be the way out. It's just stay with it. And it was fantastic, you know, coming to America, St. Louis. I remember coming to St. Louis and seeing the arch and the whole thing and, and New York City in the 70s, you know, wow, L.A. And then going through Cleveland where I just, you know, cut my teeth. I mean, it was all kind of meant to be. It was ridiculous, really. Okay. So one of the big points in the movie is you work with Bob Ezrin, yeah. who hasn't done Pink Floyd, The Wall at that point, but did Lou Reed's uh, album, did all the Alice Cooper records. And you talk what a bad experience that is. Tell it really me about was. That. He just didn't get it. I mean, you really, I don't want to like, you know, make a meal out of it, but it was, I, I, don't, I don't know how he missed it. But in the end, he stopped coming to the studio. You know, was, I was, we were being produced by the engineer. It's kind of unbelievable because I know he's got a great track record, but my experience wasn't good. Okay. And he's normally in Toronto. Did he cut it in London or in Toronto? No, in Toronto. We went all the way to Toronto to his studio. Which yeah. costs a lot of money by the time you're done. Yeah. So you, so you talk about the record. You're not happy, but you put it out anyway. So what's it like starting with a record you don't believe in? Well, it's the weirdest thing. We, we took it back to England. Everybody hated everything about it. And I think the record company thought about it and decided just to go. I mean, in London, there was posters on the, on the sides of buses. You know, you'd be talking to somebody in the street, like in Piccadilly Circus, and the bus would go by, and your name was on it. You get out of the subway, the underground, you had posters of, of the band there, you know, and we were on the major TV shows. It was like it had a life of its own. And I suppose you wish that people are going to see it for more than it is. But I think we would have made a much better record with a different producer. Okay. Now, one other element in the movie is you're in the UK. It appears that Adrian Millar is in a fight with the label and he instructs all of you to come back, but yeah. you don't. Right. So what was the real story there? Well, the real story is that. We I mean, what was, what, what was going on with him and the label? What, I don't what know. Was he, he was being threatening. I think he based his life on being one of the creative twins. You know, it was one of those kind of East End gangster kind of like, all right, mate, how you doing? Kick your fucking teeth in, mate. If you don't fucking do what I say. You know, it was like, it was unnecessary, but that was part of his persona. And I think he went toe-to-toe with, with the company and wanted more money. And the company had already spent an arm and a leg on the album and then had us in America doing a 12-day promotional tour. We did all the major TV shows, played live, met the press, uh, 
record signings. We were in the middle of a whirlwind promotional thing, and it was going well. And we were at the, uh, the Hyatt in uh, Westwood in a suite. And the phone rang, and it was Adrian. And uh, it was like, pack your bags. You're coming home now. It was like, what the fuck are you talking to me like that for? You know, uh, it's, you know, I, I, I'm the singer, I'm the writer, and I've just spent two years living off, you know, French fries and milk. And you're telling me I'm going to get on a plane because you're having a row with the record company? Can't you sort it out? And he was just that, he went straight to Adrian number two, which is kind of like, you know, you'll do what I'm going to tell you to do because I'm your manager. And we just looked at each other. He got us all on the phone one by one and said, you know, you've got to come home now. And I just said, fuck no. I mean, you can make that what you want. But uh, if we'd have gone back, we'd have wound up without Tooley Street. We wouldn't even have a, a, a clubhouse. We'd have all disappeared back into our lives. It was over. It was a hard decision to make on some level. And I never felt right about saying no to Asian because he, he was the guy. Without Asian, there'd have been nothing. But this part of him that was always about more money and we weren't getting any, you know. So it was kind of like survival, you know. That's what it was. It was survival. So what did he say when you, I mean, did you ever basically say you're fired? How did that go down? What did no, he say? It, it, you know, we just, the record company says, what do you want to do? You know, we kept, we're in the middle of this. said, well, well, fuck it. We're not coming. Out. That's it. What, what, what do we do? And they put us in a house in Beverly Hills. Uh, and Adrian rang up the FBI or the police or something. But the FBI knocked on the door about four days later. Um, wondering if we'd been kidnapped. I mean, it was just wild. You know, you couldn't make this stuff up. And we had Bill Graham and all these, like, really huge managers coming to the house to see if we'd consider being managed by them and stuff. I mean, it was only a matter of time before it exploded anyway. But uh, without Adrian, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I wouldn't be where I am. There'd be no solo career missing you or anything none none of the big success or the biggest success the babies had none of it would happen i just wish he'd be more amicable you know more more able to deal with other people to get what he wanted you know how'd you end up with ron stone um he came by the house with elliot roberts and um elliot made me laugh i mean we had one guy show up who looked like Perry Como. And he had this like sweater on that buttoned up the front and like a, a sports shirt and this really bad haircut, like a Republican haircut. And he said, uh, and I said, well, you know, who have you worked with? You know, because I was pretty much the spokesman. And this guy said, a little band, you might have heard of them, the Beatles. <laughs> and yeah. You know, so he was immediately shown the door. You know, it was like, get the fuck out. Get away from me. But Elliot was funny and very intelligent. And Ron, me and Ron just would just became great friends. We've been friends, I suppose, on and off for 30 years. And uh, 
you know, and they were very connected. They had Neil Young, and Neil Young was to me like uh, he was my Dylan, really, at that point. And Joni Mitchell, and they had the Cars, and I think they had Devo, but they they were players, and uh, they were respected, and we hit the ground running with them, and we really had a ball. And then there was an argument between them and the record company over money, and that was the end of that. So money kept looming. It's, it's whoa, 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 whoa! What happened between Lookout Management and the label, and how did you end up parting ways with them? Well, I, I think Elliot went to them and said, "Listen, we can't move forward this much in debt. You know, let's just call the debt experience and let's kick it off with a new. You know, we're in now." And they had a big row of the record company, and it just it wouldn't work with them. And so that was it. You had to get a new manager? Yeah. And who was that manager? Well, that was Renaissance Management. That was uh, Renaissance. They had Ray Davis. They had the Kinks. And we hit the road. I mean, after the incident with the guitar player, we got Jonathan Cannon and Ricky Phillips, expanded the band that became the singer. Just decided to do Baby Smart too, really, and went out and and toured relentlessly. Great fun, but it went nowhere. Okay, so the second album, how do you end up working with Ron Nevison? Um, he was he just came along when we got to LA. We 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 were staying in LA um, after the Adrian thing and doing the odd TV show and. Uh, Ron was a series of uh, one of different producers that we were introduced to, you know. Uh, he'd worked with Townsend. I was a big Pete Townsend fan. And, um, you know, he had an authentic rock uh, track record. So now you're in the studio for a second time. First time you have a bad experience. How was the experience overall? And there's a big focus on the making of Isn't It Time? Well, Isn't It Time was a song we didn't write. It became apparent that we needed a hit single or the company thought we needed a hit single. And Ron had this piano demo and um, it was, we're all kind of good at arrangement, but we tore, we tore it to pieces and remade it as, as what became like a soul British rock classic. But, um, Ron could engineer well. We had the, the big room at the record plant and we were using a mobile unit out in Malibu in a, in a ranch house. Um, it worked. You know, it's still not what I saw as, as what we were, but um, it worked. And those records stand up today. So how do you feel? And, you know, you're a bass player, you're a singer, you're a writer. How'd you feel about having to do someone else's song and that becoming the hit? Well, it, it didn't please me. I thought the songs were, that I wrote were better. There was a song on the third album called You that was like, people still shout for it now. And I wrote that one weekend. Like, and it's really well. I look at it and I think, how did I do that at that age? But the record company hated it. You know, you go up against these people that think you should sound like something when you don't. And um, you're adrift, you know, you're just fighting the record company all the time. I don't know anybody that, that hasn't had that problem. 
So how does it end with the babies? Um, I left. Jonathan Cairn got off the job with Journey. We hadn't had a hit record. Um, the biggest record we had was had first, the third record. And we had Every Time I Think of You and Head First on AM and FM simultaneously. It was as big as we would ever get. It was fabulous, you know. And we were playing sold-out places or opening for bigger bands and leaving everybody on their feet. We were at the top of our game, and the record company just couldn't do it. And I just wore out. And um, I went back to England, really. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay, before we get there, you worked with Keith Olson. Yeah. Of course, is... No longer with us, but had great success with the Fleetwood Mac with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. Yeah. And he, how was that experience relative to Ezra and Nevison? Well, it was more mean potatoes, you know. I think at that point, we were used to playing live on stage as a four, five piece band and nailing it. There were no effects on it, it was just like a really tough band. And um, we wanted to sound like that in the studio. And he made that possible. You know, he was passive. He didn't have a lot of input on the music, but he was there, you know, through the long hours of, of recording and getting it right. And, you know, he was a good guy. So when you go back to England, you're worn out. What's your plan? Well, I got married. I, you know, and, um, I lived in the countryside in a tiny cottage and I had no interest in coming back and 
doing it again, but it, it worked out that I would. Whoa, 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 a little bit slower. The woman you married, how did you know her? Well, she was my a girlfriend when I was 17. And uh, we'd come to America together with the babies. We'd moved to California. And then she went back. She didn't like it. And, um, you know, it was just a natural thing. I'd known her for 10 years. Okay. And you're out of the babies. Are you thinking, well, I'm going to have children. I'm going to get a straight job. What's going through your mind? Yeah, I had no idea. I had like six grand or something in the bank and, and um, this little cottage. And she had a job at the local paper. And I just didn't, I honestly, I never thought further ahead than two or three months. I don't know why, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cool enough to look forward and, you know, want to provide for a family or whatever. But it, I just don't know how we survived it. But I got offered a record contract with EMI and I went back and uh, had missing you. And everything just blew up again. Okay, when you went back and got married, how much were you worn out and how much were you disillusioned? Oh, I was through with it. You know, I was really through the music business. I didn't ever want to sing again. But I did go back and make, I forgot to say, I made a solo record for Christmas. I, I moved to New York City, had a small, tiny crash pad on 72nd Street, made the ignition record with Neil Giraldo. And, um, and then I quit. And went back to England. So, you know, Bob, you should have done the documentary because, you know, this is like, you know, this is in-depth, man. I'm sure there's only you and I vaguely interested in the past like this. Well, you know, this is. It's involved. I won't make it about me. It's about you. But as I say, I resonate with a lot of what you're saying. I'm not a successful musician, but the internalization and wanting to be heard. But moving forward, okay, you're, when you were married, you've never had children, correct? No, no. Is it something that you thought you would have or you kept kicking it down the road or is it something I'm so dedicated to my career, I don't want any opportunity? Yeah, I think it was finding the right person at the right time when things weren't falling apart. I mean, it's a journeyman. A profession you're flying by the seat of your pants all the time and you're on the move and it's a it, you know i look back at it now and i go how the hell did i do that or go without this and do that and make that happen and you know i i i was in a relationship a few years ago with a girl that had a kid and you fall in love with the kid you know you spend enough time around the kid it's just a natural thing to start suggesting stuff you know you start becoming somebody's dad. And it's a, it's a nice experience, you know. Um, it'll never happen now. And I think I'm long in the tooth now, so it's kind of like I wouldn't want to leave some kid alone when he was 10, when I just put my clogs, you know. Okay, let's go back to the woman you marry. That's also in the movie. How does that end? It just ends with me being away so much that we became strangers, you know, and she, the same thing. You start living different lives, you know, you really do. One also has to ask because it's rock and roll. Were you being a bad boy? I was a young man and I was an idiot, you know, but I think, um, I think that the marriage was definitely on the rocks long before we started to fall apart. I think we were just different people. 
I mean, I'd taken her to America and she really didn't like it and wanted to go home. So I think I was going to have to spend a lot more time in America to do what I was doing. And it, you just spend, a, you're just on the move. You're trying to make things work, send money home, the whole thing, you know, it just, it naturally falls apart. Okay. So now you're back in the UK. You've made this album that was not commercially successful with Neil Giraldo. Did you know Neil Giraldo? How'd you hook up with him? No. He, uh, he came forward at some point. I was looking for a producer and said, I'll do it, you know. And we, we had long conversations, went for a couple of walks, had a few drinks. I was working with Ivan Kroll from Patti Smith's band and Iggy Pop and Frankie LaRocca. Um, I had a really crack New York band. It was it was a edgy edgy band, you know. And uh, I think left to my own devices, I would have gone off and worked with Chris Spenning. Me and Chris were like talking about doing a band with Buster Jones. And um, but Neil, what a guy! I mean, he was between me and the record company. There was no love lost whatsoever between me and the record company. I hated him. They hated me. But we made a great record. It was really a record that stands up, you know, and um, more power. You know, I thought it was good. So you go back to England. You think you're done. Yes. What is the trigger to come back? Well, I met this uh, lawyer in tracks on 72nd Street before I quit. And he kept in touch. And when I went back to England. Well, what's the name of that lawyer? Uh, Rick Smith. Okay. And then there was another guy called Stephen Machat, and they became partners. And uh, they got me out of my deal with Christmas. They got me out of my deal. It cost an arm and a leg, but I got away. And they got me signed to EMI. And everything just changed. The sun burst through the sky. You know, it was like, they took me seriously. I made the record I wanted to make. I produced it. And we had the number one single overnight. Okay. Although you go into it, tell us here the story of writing Missing You. Well, I was around at somebody's house. We'd, we'd finished the record. And um, I knew we hadn't got the single. We were having a ball in the studio. We were writing songs, me and the guitar player, Gary Myrick. We're just storming through the Wait, 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 wait. I have to ask you something. I was a huge fan of that first record. She talks in stereo. I bought it. Oh, yeah. I, w I went to see him at the Roxy. How did you hook up with Gary Myrick? Through, the, through Gary Gersh at EMI. I think, uh, I think Gary Gersh was talking to Gary Myrick about doing a deal. And when I was looking for guitar player, Gary said, you know, you should meet Gary Myrick. It might be interesting. You know, he's, he's, he's out there, but he's great. And I said, okay, sure. I met uh, Gary showed up. And we had the drummer from uh, Tom Petty's band uh, sit in and Flea was on bass uh, and Gary. And uh, we hit it off. It was just like magical. It was like, let's go. And um, we'd made the record in, in record time, like in six weeks from me getting off the plane to mixing. And I knew we hadn't got a single. I knew. I knew enough about the business how it worked. Uh, to know that it could come and go so fast. You get a great review in Rolling Stone, and then people go back to what they were doing. And I wanted a hit single. 
And I was working on this song with this guy in his studio. And we'd been there a couple of days while they were mixing. And he hadn't put any code on the tape. So he's hitting play and forward and reverse and play. And he couldn't find the song that worked on the night before. And he hit the play button at the wrong time. And this thing he'd been working on, like an eight-note feel with uh, terrible phony drums and some good guitar playing. But it was the backing track for what turned out to be missing you. And I said, let me have a crack at that. Just let me have a go. You know, I'm always game to do that kind of thing. I was good at that in the babies. You know, I could make stuff up on the mic. And I got it. I, we ran through it once. He didn't record it. And then he, ran, he recorded the second one. And I got the whole first verse in the chorus. You know, I mean, every road that I've been, ever been on led me to that moment. And I knew it was number one. And, and that was my next question. People don't understand when you do something that's an 11, you yeah. know, Oh, you know, it's like when you touch something like a microphone and it's live and you go like this, you know, it's like getting a shock. And I, I hadn't even, it was like sleepwalking. I'd used every time I think of you as the first line, because it was a baby song. Every time I think of you. And so, I had no idea what I was going to sing. And so I sang that first line and the rest of it just happened. I always catch my breath and I'm still standing here and you're miles away and I'm wondering why you left. And there's a storm that's raging through my frozen heart tonight. I ain't missing you at all since you've been gone away in one piece. And, you know, I always could do that. Most of my lyrics come from that place of just close your eyes, step forward. Don't overthink. Just open up. You can't count on it. It's a very feminine thing. If you go there too often or you disrespect it and think, God, oh, I'll take care of that tomorrow, it goes away. It ignores you. And if you save it for the right moments, it's almost like having a, a secret lover. It's somebody that's just waiting for you. You know, it's intense, but I'm sure that something as brilliant as Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. I'm sure she sat down, she's going, dun, 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 dun. you got a fast car. Is it fast enough? You can fly away. You know, I'm, I'm sure that all the, the really beautiful songs in the world that are really heartbreaking come from that kind of, and, and the really tremendous rock and roll songs. You know, watching Paul McCartney write Get Back in the, in the recent movie, you know, you can see him. You can see him like zoning out the other two are looking at him like, what does he do? Yeah. And the next thing you know, get back evolves out of like two chords. Two chords. It's magical. Okay, you write the song. You know you have something. Are you worried about nailing it in the recording? Uh, I never worry about that. That would be, I'd be making that up. I really am in control in the studio. I, I really, I know when it's not working and I know what it is. Um, you know, I mean, I was pushing myself so hard as a singer on that record. <clears throat> I would probably sing things 20 times over. So it was what I wanted it to be. So 
it's a completely different era. You have a new label. It's a new era. MTV. You have a song that is obvious smash. Does everybody say, get, let's get behind this. Let's make a video. Or do they put the record out and say, well, let's see what happens. Oh, no. Jim Marza. <clears throat> Jim Marza was the head of the company. Gary Gersh was the A&R guy. And Frenchy Gautier, the late Frenchy Gautier, was the uh, art department. Uh, they were, they knew what they'd got. I think there was a lot of goodwill towards me at that point. I think people had watched Chrysalis and were like, oh, man. And then with a the solo album, I think there was a, a certain empathy. You know, people wanted to see me succeed. What about the video? Well, I used the same guy that I, I used for change. I, I was very happy with that video. So I suggested him and he came along and made a, a great, great video. The, um, to tell you about EMI and Gary Gersh, I mean, I was in New York City mixing the record, staying at the Mayflower, and we went to see a David Bailey exhibition. Me, Stephen Michelle, and Gary Gersh. And David Bailey is like the premier photographer of the 60s, you know. And um, there's the Cray Twins, Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger, the Shrimp, you know, the, you know, just fabulous stuff. And I turned around to Gary and said, you should do the album cover. The next thing I know, I'm on the Concorde, flying <laughs> to London <laughs> to work with David Bailey. I mean, that's, that's what my life was like. I mean, you think, you think this is like, I mean, every time you ask me a question, I can give you like four stories that led to that, you know, the answer. But, you know, hey, you know, Gary, he should do the album cover. Concord, here we go. You know, and working with David Bailey, he shot the album cover. I mean, just these times, just things coalesce. They do. Sometimes all the energy in the world that's, that you've been looking for to, to lock together, like a wooden puzzle, you know, and it just clicks. And it did. What was it like seeing yourself on TV at Infinitum? Um, well, it became a bit much because, you know, I think Missing You was like number one on MTV for like 15 weeks. And there's a point where you want to say, that's really great. Thank you. You know, and I was still a bit shy about it. I couldn't go out in New York, whereas before I could go out. But now when I went in a bar, They'd put Missing You on the tube box and start buying me drinks and stuff. It, it was just different. And I didn't, didn't really know how to deal with it at first. It wasn't that comfortable because it was really a step forward from being famous to really famous, you know, a different world. And the reason I love New York is that I just disappear into the crowd. So it was a different world for me. And how much pressure was there on the follow-up album? No question. He offered me a, 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 a large amount of money, which I needed, but I hadn't got any money. Um, I'd seen a house I wanted to buy and said, just give us a record. And I just looked at my catalog, looked what I'd got, went to work with Ivan, banged up some songs and made the Mask of Smiles album. It's a different album completely, but it's, there's like four or five extremely strong songs on that one. But I wasn't shooting to, to replicate the success of Missing You. That would have been imbecilic you know it would have been just stupid it's like write something that sounds like missing it wasn't going to happen once yeah. you reach that pinnacle 
to what degree are you striving to replicate the success and to what degree are you disappointed when you don't reach the holy grail once again? Well, it didn't bother me. I honestly thought if I could be, and it's in the documentary, but I meant it, if I could establish myself as a singer and writer, then I could make any kind of records I wanted to make every other year. I wasn't going to be on the merry-go-round. I could write my own ticket. There'd always be money coming in. It wasn't going to be do or die. It was just art, you know. I didn't see any reason to be Madonna. You know, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different thing, man. That's like, that's a day job in itself. And you specifically said, that's not me. Well, yeah. No, I, I honestly did. I wanted to just make great records and uh, have a, a following. I mean, what else is there? I mean, after a couple of years of being top of the pops, if you follow that path, you're usually finished. But if you do the Richard Thompson thing or whatever it is, like the Townsend solo albums, you know, you, you try and, you know, give the best you've got for the period you're in. But it's, it's, if you can make it last for five years, you've done something almost impossible. You know, I'm here after 40 years. It isn't chance, you know. So I know Chaz Sanford sold his publishing. Yeah. Did your interest in Missing You go with it, or you still have No, I got it back yes, uh, last year. I finally got the publishing back on Missing You last year. So now it's, it's you know, it, it's really worth something now. And do you plan to hold on to it, or if someone made a oh, write-off? absolutely. I mean, if somebody comes out of the woodwork and offers me twenty million for my publishing, I would certainly put down my coffee cup and and turn around and talk to them. You know, I certainly would. And at this point in my life, that would just give me complete freedom to do anything I want, really. Okay, and so you're making these records with EMI America. And one other theme is on the uh, in the movie is whenever you really are an inch away, you have great product. Something happens with the record company. Yeah. So what happened with EMI, and then certainly Imago thereafter that failed. So tell us about those situations. Well, the EMI, I, I had this record called Rover's Return. We had a number one single in R and R records and whatever it is, radio and records. Yeah. Yeah, the, in the old days. And I went to Germany. Run by Robert Kardashian. No. Yes. Wow, the, the big K. Right. Special K. But uh, yeah, I, and I went to Germany to do some TV to promote the single. I came back and the record had gone from number one to like 78. And what had happened is that EMI, Man, EMI America had overnight become EMI Manhattan. And they changed the head of the company. They changed the offices, everything. And um, they were really great. I have nothing. Joe Smith came in. He was great. He tried to salvage everything. But the team gets broken up. And you can't blame anybody. It just is how business goes. And um, they tried everything. They made the right videos. And I got Trudy Green to manage me. And it was like, here we go. But he couldn't. you can't salvage something like that. It's a train wreck. I mean, even to get involved is heroic. And, and I, EMI were nothing but great with me. They were just stupendous. The new regime was cool. Everything was cool. They were nice people. But, um, yeah, sometimes it happens. You know, Imago 
I had a hit single. I had a song in the True Romance movie, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Tony Scott shot the video, filmmaker in Monument Valley. And that was really my best work. Best band I've ever been in. Best songs, the whole thing. And a month out, Imago falls. It just happens. You, all this stuff just happens. You can't take it personally. A couple of years later, I bought the record back and re-released it. So I own it. And so I don't have to watch the record just get covered in weeds. I can still promote that record and I'm proud of that record. Well, you're very upbeat and philosophical about all this. In the movie, you don't seem quite as settled. What are you on? It was, no, that was the pandemic. How about antidepressants, therapy? They come in? Uh, No, 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 no. Alcohol, probably. It's, it's, um, I think it's, it's the pandemic, you know, when, when you have that much time to think and everything's going wrong, I'm sure it's going to have a, a shade to it, but, um, uh, you get pragmatic when you go, you know, if you've been around the block a few times, you learn to live with the stuff that happens. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. So how does bad English come to be? Well, I was um, I went to Epic to get a record deal. And the A&R guy didn't like my songs. And I really wanted to be on Epic. And Trudy Green, my manager, would have liked me to be there too. It's the biggest, best, brutalist, the classiest record label. And me and Trudy left the meeting and I was going like, I can't work with that guy. You know, he doesn't even like me. 
And uh, I remember walking down Madison Avenue and saying to Trudy, I'll start a band. I'll start a band and we'll, we'll be on Epic, that I'll be the singer in the band. Was this during the Richard Griffiths era? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was. So you say you're going to start a band? Yeah, I, I went all over. I went to England looking for guitar players. I was going to track down Johnny Marr to see if he knew anybody. And none of that happened. I didn't do any of it. And I, in the end, I, I went to work with Jonathan Kane, Neil Sean, Ricky Phillips, and Dean Cashinovo. Um, it took about five months to arrive at that point, or four months. And from that point on, it just took off. Well, you had a history with Jonathan Kane. How did you get Neil Schoen involved? Through Jonathan Kane. And Neil was just like, journey's not happening, I'm in? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think they always had problems. There always seems to be very political. And um, nothing was happening with them. And Neil just wants to play. You know, he just wants to plug in and play. So now you go back with the band. And what is what do they say? Yeah, I knew it. I, you know, you walk in with those guys, and um, the A and R guy and got a leg to stand on. It was like we love it. We'll sign it. Here's a very large check, you know. And can we have your publishing? And you know, how are you doing? Can we have dinner tonight? You know, it's just like it's suddenly on a different level. And um, I got a huge publishing advance from Sony, and. Um, Everything was back on track, you know? And how did you end up doing the Diane Warren song? Well, we'd done the whole album. And the a this is a great story. And the A&R guy had left us alone. It, it, who, it, who is this A&R person? It was Don Grierson. Okay. Yeah. He was he's no longer with us, so you can no, say what not, I don't want to, you know, he's a nice guy. And, um, and I went to the band and said, listen, Don's been really great. You know, he stood out of the way most of the time and he's, He's tried to be as uh, fly on the wall as possible. And he has this song. And I know, Diane, it would be great if we just tried the song, you know, at least, you know, it would be just good. And they said, okay. And so I went in at the 11th hour and put When I See You Smile just to sort of show the company that we were capable of working with them and we, we liked Don and everything was cool. And we just looked at each other like, oh, no. You know, it's a hit. And um, the big question was then at Frontline, HK management was, do we not do this song? Uh, or do we have a number one single? It was like that, that awful fork in the road, you know. Okay, well, it ends up being a huge hit. Yeah. But then the band implodes. Why does the band implode? Well, I think it's a lot of tension, a lot of egos, a lot of... Um, too much business, not of music, you know. And when the band falls apart, you say another day in music business, or you you're pretty disillusioned, depressed about well, I, that. I, I went back to my house in Poundridge, and that was the end. I really didn't want to do anything at all ever again with the music. I, you know, I had enough money coming in. I had a lovely house in a wood, and uh, it was just like I just didn't care. It wasn't like you know sacrifice it was like i just want to get out and then i got after about a year and a half i got offered a deal with imago and i'd written all these songs you know so i went back in to make one last solo record about new york city and um 
like I said before, Temple Bar was probably my best record. Okay, but then the band, the label blows up. Yeah. So how do you get pulled back in one more time? Well, Ron Stone. Ron Stone. I, 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 see, making Temple Bar was like a watershed moment. I went back to being a writer. The, the, the slightly corporate element of bad English had nauseated me. Really. I, was, I didn't know what to do with myself. And I thought I had to redeem myself. That's the truth. And I, I, so I wrote the record, The Downtown More, In God's Shadow, Glittering Price. This, this was like the best I ever got. And um, it reawakened my interest in writing. I couldn't stop. I felt like I'd become an artist again. And uh, I wrote a record. I drove across America when the record company went down. I went to New Orleans. I drove in a Jeep Cherokee down to New Orleans, then up to uh, Kentucky to Ohio, and then uh, east to New York City, back home. But I wrote most of that album, When You Were Mine, on that trip. And I'd fallen in love with country music, again, as with Temple Bar, there's a slight country influence, baritone guitars and stuff. I'm so lonesome I could cry on that. But on When You Were Mine, it's really a bluesier, more folky kind of approach. And, uh, you know, there's no choice. You have to make this, these, these albums. It's not like a great, you know, it's not biblical. It's what I do. It's just making music. So how do you end up getting hooked up with Alison Krauss, which is in the movie, but we got you now. Well, I, um, I was in Nashville. I was writing songs. I was doing a greatest hits album and I was re-recording some songs and I got to missing you. And I thought, well, I can't do anything else with missing you that I haven't done already. And I thought, well, I'll do a duet. Who would I like to sing with? And I was watching the American uh, music channel and Alison was on there with new favorite when I became aware of her. And um, my manager rang her manager and said, John would like you to sing on, on Missing You. And she said, yes. Well, she said, yes. The record was very successful in the country world, but you continued to have a connection with Allison, right? Yeah, uh, we're friends. And um, um, yeah, I mean, I, she, we did another Don Williams song, um, Lay Down Beside Me. And uh, I was living in Nashville. You know, we, we were close. You know. it was, good. was it ever a romance? Um, you know, that would be nice. <laughs> okay. And then another big thing in the movies, you go out with Ringo. Yeah. But you said one and done. Now, Ringo historically goes out with different people. Oh, the band is somewhat solidified in the last couple of years. So... You got to play with Ringo and meet Ringo, which of course is amazing. But in the everyday experience of doing it, how'd you feel? Well, it was tough. You know, I was extremely competitive with the All Stars. Everybody's trying to do the right thing and shine. I'm just trying to play bass and shut up. I would have just played bass and not sung if I could have. Because if you look across the station, there he is. It's Ringo stuff, you know. And um, it was stressful you know i mean yeah i mean i'm pretty i play to a high standard but um he played with paul mccartney and so i had to go back to playing the bass and um nothing but respect i mean how could you have anything but 
I was nervous, you know. But it was uh, uh, it was it was very demanding. It was a really demanding gig. And I think that the fact that there was Paul Carrick, Sheila Reed, Colin Hay, there's a lot of uh, very famous individuals on stage. And um, I think Ringo prefers to play with more muso kind of situations. That's what I think. And when did you realize you didn't want to do it again? What, the Ringo thing? Yeah. Day one. Well, that's why I'm asking. So what yeah. happened? What went through your head? You showed up at rehearsal and you said, what the fuck did I sign up for? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's tough. It's a tough gig. Everybody's like jockeying and everybody's like, you know, I didn't do that. It's like, get the fuck out. You know, where I would stop a song and say, am I, is this the right note? You know, am I playing the right note here in the bottom? Is this, is this in the right key? People just walk away and stuff. And I'm going like, Jesus Christ. Can we just sit down and run through this stuff? But it, there's a thing about it being um, low impact. I think there's a thing where he just wants to show up and play, meet people, smile, shake hands, and walk off, you know? But I think he's, he's got a really good core band now. And uh, whereas I'm a bit of a perfectionist, I would like to think that I'm a perfectionist in that situation. Okay, going back to the songwriting, you started out doing it yourself. Yeah. But if you look at your credits, there's a lot yeah. of co-writes. Yeah. Was that something you were pushed into? Is something you tended no, to like? I was, you know, I found myself, I can write by myself standing on my head, but I don't really do a good job of it. I think that, um, uh, is it ADD when you can't concentrate? What, is, what do they call that? ADHD, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've got that. If I have somebody in front of me and they only play like two chords, and I take everything from that point and run with it, do the lyric and write the rest of the song and the melody and the whole thing. As long as I have somebody in front of me, I'll write a song. It's either that or extreme laziness, you know, and it could be that too. But I need a sounding board. I need someone to bounce off, to entertain, maybe to show off to, I don't know. But I, if somebody plays me a minor chord and I play something in the bass, that, that it isn't necessarily what you would think was going to happen between the minor chord and the major chord, I'll suddenly have a song, but I won't get that input without the guy playing the minor chord. So I would much prefer seven days a week to write a song with somebody. Me and Glenn Burton can go toe-to-toe and write stuff that, that makes me wonder how we did it. But it's like completely spontaneous, and I am best at being spontaneous. I keep a lot of notebooks. I write down phrases all the time. If I'm reading a book, I see a passage go by and go, that's great. How did you think? You know, I'm very about words. And I love them. But when I'm singing and when I'm writing songs, a lot of it just happens. So in the back of my mind, I must have made a mental note or I must have keyed into some image that would go over with another image. But you don't know until you start singing. But I get the melody and the words at the same time. And I have no idea how I do it. I can't take any credit for anything I've done that was any good because I'm just making it up as I go along. I might take it home and finish it and polish it. And, I mean, sometimes the story songs like Bluebird Cafe or Masterpiece of Loneliness, they have real themes. And... 
I don't know what's good and what's not anymore unless I believe it. And, and if I believe it, it's good. If I don't believe it, it's shit. Well, someone like Bert Dick, who played with Sticks but lives in New Jersey, how do you hook up with all these people? You meet oh, them I, knew the- Bert Nick. I knew Bert Nick for, I needed a guitar player when um, I was in New York. And uh, he'd been a fan and he'd actually lived next door to me in LA when I was there with the babies and never said hello. But we got introduced. He's a great guy. And we started writing songs. And we wrote Downtown, which is probably one of the most penultimate songs. It was just like Downtown. We wrote that on a beat up old Steinway at Sony. He had cigarette burns on it and keys missing. It's all out of tune. And I was trying to write a song for True Romance. I wrote a song with another guy, um, Mark Spiro, called In Dreams to Go in the Movie. But it was True Romance, the song. And there's this beautiful Irish, wasted, lonesome East Coast, New York, Manhattan thing on this Steinway. It's all out of tune. And Glenn's playing these chords. And I would just jump up and um, the engineer would hit record that sing the first line. And then he'd keep playing the songs about how about, you know, and then I would just shoot out of my seat again. You know, you can find me in the temple bar. And, I, and it's like making a jigsaw, really. Sometimes it doesn't come out in one piece. It's just lines. But this thing comes out of the mist. And I, I have no idea. There's no cleverness to it. There's no guile. There's no talent. It's just like completely, it just comes out of nowhere. But at the same time, you're editing in such a clear, focused way. I mean, I really knew where that song was going. And it's about scoring drugs, you know. And people think it's about all this other stuff, but it's a it's a very dark song. But you don't know what you've got till you've finished it. Okay. So the movie has a lot of live shots from the present day. How long has this band been together? Uh, how did you find them? Because you mentioned earlier they all live in different locations. And then sometimes it's acoustic and sometimes it's electric. Yeah. So tell me about all that. Well, I met Tim Hogan, the bass player, in Carmine's Italian restaurant 15 years ago. Okay, uh, on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. Yeah, well, no, 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 in Times Square. Oh, in that Ta- Carmine. Oh, yeah. You know, Sorry. Hey, more than one Carmine. And uh, yeah, and he offered me his coat. It was snowing outside. And um, he said to him, my coat, because I hadn't got a coat on. And we became friends, and he became the bass player. Uh, and became part of the organization and uh, just a stellar human being. And then Mark Rashadi was working in a guitar shop. It was a friend of Tim's, and we took Mark on. We couldn't get a steady guitar player, so I said, okay, well, let's, you know, we have to play these shows. Let's give it all to Mark. And Mark was given a huge amount, big shoes to step into. It took him a while, but he arrived... Um, in spades, you know, he's a tremendous guitar player, and and he's he's gone from being a guy that works in a guitar shop to a tremendous guitar player. And Alan Childs was in the No Breaks band, 
that you see um, at the beginning of the documentary, a young Alan Childs with Carmine Rojas and Earl Slick, Tommy Mandel. They were all in the No Breaks band. But I met uh, Alan in Las Vegas uh, a couple of years ago, and he said, if you ever need a drummer, call me, and I called him. So that's it. And some of the days we do are like in theaters, like storytellers, and it's two acoustics, uh, electric bass and drums. And you stop the show and you do requests, so you talk to the audience. You play these key songs. Again, Downtown, St. Patrick's Day, Masterpiece of Loneliness, Bluebird Cafe, In God's Shadow, In Dreams, Missing You. It's, an, it's good. You know, I mean, they're the songs that you can really... I don't, it's not even singing. You're sort of like sharing a story. And people are like, you know, looking at you like they're listening to a story. And then the other version of the band is we come out two-fisted, all electric, and it's it's an entirely different animal. But we do stop in the middle and do Bluebird Cafe acoustic, no matter where we are. If, if they're going to throw shit, they can throw it. But uh, we've tried that this year on... Um, to about 7,000 people a night. And you could hear a pin drop. You know, that's, that's why I get out of bed. That's because that isn't synthesizers and bullshit and big drums. And it's like, it's a, it's a simple acoustic guitar and a vocal. And if you can get seven, 8,000 people to go completely quiet and listen to that, then you're in the right place at the right time, you know? And do you have a manager or you do it all yourself? No. Me and Tim, we have, uh, if uh, work comes to me, we have an agent and they ring up and Tim says, do you want to go and play this gig for this much? We can do that. We can do this gig the next night and say, yeah or no. And we go and do it. Who's the agent? Um, Blue Raven. We're with Blue Raven at the moment. So do you ever go to... You ever go to them and say, well, you know, I want to work from April through June, just book something? No, it's not like that. You, you know, you, you, you can get to the point where you're just playing ridiculous places. You know, I want to keep it sort of classy. I want to play theaters and uh, interesting listening rooms and uh, sheds, you know. Uh, I've spent enough time playing in out the way places. I mean, I, I want to play like the city winery kind of thing. That, those kind of gigs are great. But they don't, they, they, they can't just go out there and say, okay, we're going to book it right through June, July, and August. You know, it doesn't work like that. And you talked about uh, playing to 7,000 people. How much of the time do you go out alone or do you go out in a package? Um, well, that was with the package. That's with Rick Springfield and Men at Work. But we do a lot of gigs with uh, Neil Geraldo and Pat Benetton. Um, and then we play like thousand seat headline, maybe more. Uh, you know, it's, it's not one thing all the time. You can maybe do four gigs being the opening act for a band that's really established and you're playing to 7,000 people. And then you can go the next night and play a headliner uh, and you're playing to 1,500 people. And maybe on the third night, there's a 600 seat listening room that's like an art center where you can do the unplugged thing and you love all that. And then you go back to opening for somebody or whatever. You put it together. But the, the idea is to play the best places possible 
and bring it. You know, if you're playing so outdoor places or, or God forbid, a club, a rock club, you know, it's like, man, you're supposed to bring it. And, you know, those kind of places, you don't want to go there. So do you have enough money saved and income that theoretically you could stop working or are you working to live? Um, oh, no. I've got money in the bank. And like I said, I own my own place. I have publishing. And we're working. And I own most of my catalog, you know. Look, it wasn't always like that. I came back up from really being kicked out of the music business. I was, I was just stubborn, Bob. I wasn't going to go down and stay down. I, did, I, I wanted to write songs and sing. And here I am. Are you going to die on stage or at some point? I hope call not. With? I hope not. People keep saying, there's a great line in Steve Earle's song, um, Fort Worth Blues. And he says, you always said the highway was your home, but we both know that that ain't true. That's a wonderful couplet. You know, it's just really the romance of going, kicking the bucket on the road to me is bullshit. You know, you want to be somewhere where you're really happy and look back at your life and say, okay. So what would it take for you to stop? I'll let you know. I think there's a moment, honestly, where you put your hand up and say, thank you. It's been great tonight. And you walk off. And yes, you might change your clothes. You walk out to the parking lot, get in the van. And in your heart, you know that's your last show. And uh, I don't want to be around, you know. I mean, you see some of these bands, man. <laughs> you know, there's a certain amount of sex involved with rock and roll. And the older you get, I mean, it's nice, you know, to see all the people play. But I think there's a point where, you know, you just should make yourself scarce. There's a lot of people waiting to get on stage. So the movie opens on December 6th. Where can people see it? I don't know. Like I said before, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. I did the interviews. I knew the guy that put it all together. But I, I've had no input. I, somebody told me that the different cable stations it's going to be on but i i didn't make a note of it you know okay and uh there's certainly a website uh the hard way the movie something very similar to that if you google right. john wait in the hard way you'll certainly come right up and i think it's going to be on demand on multiple platforms and as i say the movie is excellent not because i'm blowing smoke but otherwise i wouldn't be talking to you and it's intriguing one is with whether one is a fan or not. But in the back of your mind, do you think that this will be a boost for your career? Yeah. I think, like I said before, and you called it hagiography, was it? How do you yes. say that? Uh, I, what you wrote about it and what you wrote about constant sort of turmoil of the entertainment business and people getting ahead and the ephemeral thing that comes, you know, I couldn't have agreed with you more. If I was better with words, I would write all that down as I wrote it. Yeah, I thought it was quite brilliant and I'm not blowing smoke either, but I thought, honestly, that's how I see it. And, uh, I've always had a, a, a pretty good fan base. I've just been through, I'm in the shadows, you know, but I mean, I'm working a lot and every time we show up, it's like, you know, it's great. But I suppose it will. 
Um, I don't know. You know, I, I don't worry about anything like that, Bob. I really don't. I, ju I just sort of like get up, have a cup of coffee and start the day. I, I don't plan ahead. And I certainly don't plan ahead more than six months if I have to. A big point at the beginning of the movie is how difficult you are. And yeah. it has to be your way. Yeah. And it doesn't uh, bode well for relationships. I'm talking business relationships. I'm talking to you now. I don't hear any of that. So it's yeah, so about we're not, making, we're not making art. You know, I mean, if, if you were producing me and I had this song and I had this music in my head and I could hear this sound that I wanted and I knew where the lyrics should go and you're saying, ah, John, nobody uses that word. Use something else. And I go, no, it's a beautiful word. You go like, oh, come on now. You know, and I go, no. And then, you know, things go to the next level. But, the, but that's, you know, I don't believe in any of that. I think, you know, when you produce a record, you should cut everything live and let the artist have his head. If he's worth going in the studio, he's going to deliver the goods. But I don't want to be the flair of the week or, or like somebody suggests I do a certain kind of song because it's like happening now and the kids dig it. I mean, I'm not interested. I'm just not. And yeah, if that makes me difficult, then that's what I am. Well, yeah. having having seen the movie, it sounded also the way it was portrayed that part of your personality makes just everyday relationships difficult. I mean, are you the type of person who goes and calls friends, hangs with friends, or you're basically in your own head until you go out to work? Yeah, um, I think I'm pretty hard to reach sometimes. There's a lot going on. I wish there wasn't, but I I, I tend to be. You know, half of my mind is writing a song all the time. Or it's thinking about a line from a book. Or cowboy music. You know, whatever it is. But half of me is always away. It's else, elsewhere, you know. You're happy. Are you happy the way that things are? And you'll continue to do your gig until you have that moment we referenced earlier. Or in the back of your mind, is there one big goal or achievement that you still, or a bar that you want to reach? I've been doing it all my life. I honestly feel like I've been a success at every step in my life, even if people were not there to witness it, or it didn't sell a million records, or 10,000 records. I've always done what I wanted. That's been a success. It really is. I know it sounds like a speech, but I've been, I've had the great luxury of loving what I do all my life and you can't buy that and i've had a wonderful life i i haven't missed the bullseye once so i believed in what i've done all my life i'm very very lucky well it's been wonderful talking to you it's you know you're very forthcoming and honest you don't hold back you can feel the integrity and the motion coming through so john i want to thank you so much for taking the time thank you bob it um it's it's um since you reviewed the documentary, um, we've had like a tsunami of interest because you have such credibility. But uh, doing the interview and reading your review, um, I think we're in pretty much a like mind. And it's a pleasure for me to talk to you too. Well, I'm smiling and my shyness makes it hard to uh, come back. But thank you so much for that. 
God bless you. And thanks for everything. Till next time, this is Bob Lefstex. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.